Please turn with me uh, in your Old Testament to the book of Proverbs chapter 25 for our Old Testament lesson this morning. It's two short verses that speaks and attests to the wisdom of self-control. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. A man without self-control is like a broken city, a city broken into and left without walls. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes to us from Second Peter chapter 1, where Peter speaks of self-control and the virtues and importance of it, the nature of Christian discipleship. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. God's divine power has granted to all of us those things that pertain to life and to godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through these promises you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail." For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And finally, our New Testament, or our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning, coming to us one last time from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, that the fruit that has been produced by the Spirit includes that virtue of self-control. And against such things as self-control, there is no law. Let's go before the Lord and ask that he would bless his word. Our gracious God and Father, we do pray uh, that as we have heard your word read, that your spirit would so uh, move on our hearts, that you would bless its reading, uh, that that word being implanted as a seed in our hearts would bear forth fruit unto godliness. Teach us the way of godliness, we pray. Uh, that we might bear fruit before you, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in Acts chapter 24, we find that Paul has once more been thrown into prison. This time, however, Paul has been summoned to appear before the Roman governor of Judea, much as Christ had been years prior before Pilate. So now, Paul is called to stand before the Roman governor, Felix. Felix is what we would call 
a crooked politician. He was not a good man. Here's a man who held a string of marriages. He, according to the Roman historian Josephus, had hired assassins to murder political dissidents, including Jonathan, the high priest in Jerusalem. And now Felix has Paul under lock and key with the hopes that Paul will offer him a sum large enough to bribe his way out of prison. But unbeknownst to Felix, Paul has different plans in mind. Rather than bribing his way out of prison, Paul uses the next two years of his life in prison to stand before the Roman governor daily to preach the gospel to him. As Luke tells us, Paul stood before the governor and spoke about faith in Jesus Christ, what it means to trust in Christ. But then Luke makes this interesting observation that Paul also reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. When it comes to the ABCs of Christianity, I don't think many of us would immediately think of self-control as a necessary component of discipleship. I don't think it's that we are opposed to the concept necessarily. Perhaps we do not think about it often enough. But how many of us would include this in the building blocks of Christian discipleship or in our evangelical witness? Acts chapter 24, Paul tells us that's exactly what he did. He speaks of what it means to have faith in Christ, and he speaks of self-control and the coming judgment. When you read Calvin's little booklet on the Christian life, chapter 1 begins with what? The first duty of the Christian. What Calvin sees as the summary duty of the whole Christian life, one of self-denial. In other words, the necessity of reigning in your passions, your desires, everything that you are to the will and sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul reminds us in our passage before us this morning, self-control is a fruit. It is an evidence that the Spirit of Christ is at work in us as the Spirit does that secret work that He does in our hearts to make us look like Christ, who Himself practiced self-control. And so in a nation and an era of self-indulgence, I think we would do well to consider this often neglected virtue. We'll take it under two headings. First, we'll consider the self. And then secondly, we'll consider what it means to control the self. To help understand what it is that we mean by self-control. So two parts, the self and self-control. I think anyone who has ever considered human nature knows that the heart is a complex thing. For those of us who have spent the past uh, uh, two or three months having read through Craig Trox's book on the heart, we see how rich a metaphor the scriptural doctrine of the heart really is. Where when the Bible speaks of the heart, it speaks not just of the things that we love, but also of our reasoning capabilities and our deeds as well as our desires. And what we find is that man, after the fall, all three of these components are often at war with one another. If you look earlier here in this chapter, Galatians 5.17, Paul describes the human condition as a man divided. 
Not simply the issue of man against God or man against man, though that also is true, but a man who is divided against himself so that the things that you do often run contrary to the things that you desire to do. In Paul's estimation, the whole human race is much like Jekyll and Hyde writ large. Not two separate persons, but one person that is divided, engaged in a bloody sinful war, civil war, that rages in his own heart between the reason and the passions and the deeds of the body. Augustine and older theologians would speak of this as disordered desire. I mean, to consider human nature before the fall, where man's reasoning, his affections, and his will all, all operated together in perfect harmony, like a well ordered machine. And yet, once Adam rebelled against God, the fall threw a monkey wrench into that machine. Now we find that our thoughts run one direction, our desires run another, and our wills yet in another. And even in those rare times when our mind, our will, and our affections do seem to coordinate together, we find that they all coordinate against the will of God. The things of the flesh operate contrary to the things in which the Spirit Delights, Galatians 5, 17. It's not simply that our passions are desires that love forbidden things, that that is true. That's what God's moral law sets out, where he says, these are the boundaries. You shall not do this. You shall not desire this. This is prohibited. But we find that the human heart is so sinful that it also loves good things inordinately. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that human nature has become such that man has taken even the good things of creation and has turned them into idols. We have become a race that not only loves things that are out of bounds, but even the love of good things has become out of balance Disordered desires with an inability to rein in our passions. The old pagan philosophers would speak of self-control as the exercise of reason subjugating the passions, and yet they fail to recognize that even our reasoning needs reining in because our thoughts also have been disordered by the fall. And so fallen man is controlled by his own lusts. Eyes full of adultery, Peter writes in his second letter. And Proverbs tells us that such a man in such a disordered state will ultimately be led to ruin if he hasn't already. Proverbs chapter 25, a man without self-control, quite literally a man without spirit. A man who does not have the fortitude or the strength to rein in his sinful desires and subjugate them to the law of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has become like a city vandalized. A city whose walls have been broken down. 
and left without walls. It's a city that's ripe for the taking. In other words, the man who is unable to control his passions has already lost the war. Ecclesiastes speaks of the wandering appetite, of the desires that can never be satisfied, where man is strung along by his own sinful heart, pursuing one luxury after another without restraint. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes looks on the human condition and says this is what the human race as a whole does, and it is futile. It's like striving after the wind. We all pursue bigger and better toys, bigger and better pleasures, greater things, greater joys, and yet we find that we can never be satisfied because we pursue forbidden things. Paul speaks of the enemies of the cross of Christ as those who serve a different God, those gods being their own bellies. Philippians chapter 3. And as they serve their own bellies, their bellies lead them to destruction. Paul tells Titus that the whole worldly, uh, the whole human race has been governed by worldly passions. And so in light of that, the grace of God has appeared to train us to repudiate these worldly passions and to live self-controlled lives. Not that we would simply rein in our sinful desire, like all you have to do is put a tiger on a dog leash. Rather, we're called to do something far greater, far more difficult. We're called to crucify our sinful passions. Older translations would Translate this, as you'd see in Colossians chapter 3 and elsewhere, as the mortification of sin. Such was the title of John Owen's great work. John Owen writes this regarding man's requirement and the pursuit of holiness to live a self-controlled life, to subjugate those sinful lusts. He says, Do not let that man think that he makes any progress in holiness who does not walk over the bellies of his own lusts. See, self-control is that spirit-wrought virtue whereby the believer is enabled more and more to control his own passions and deeds of the heart and the body. Self-control is that virtue. It is the art of learning to control the impulses of the heart all of our reasonings, all of our longings, all of our actions, and subject them to the will of God. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, Brothers, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Now, the Christian life entails learning to bring not just our desires, but the deeds of the body in subjection to Christ. Yet I think, I think there are certain misconceptions that come along as soon as we begin to think of this. When Scripture speaks of self-control, it is not speaking of a cold pagan stoicism. The purpose of self-control is not to become emotionless. 
Rather, it is to have our emotions sanctified and reordered by the Spirit's power. We're reminded when we read the Gospel, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. Jesus didn't sin when He wept. It's perfectly legitimate to mourn in the midst of great sorrow. So when Scripture says to practice self-control, to get hold of yourself, it does not mean learn to bottle up your emotions. Rather, it means, at least in part, to have an emotional life that conforms to the law of God, to the love of God, the love of neighbor, the law of love. I think we have to ask ourselves, in what ways do our sinful passions gain the upper hand? What is it that we need to be on the lookout for as we are to consider controlling the self? When we recognize that our hearts are so sinful, how does our sinful heart manifest itself in such ways that we lose control? I think the most obvious example that Scripture gives is that regarding our own speech. We heard this morning, actually in Sunday school, one uh, person used the, the illustration of opening your mouth and sticking your foot in it. And how many of us do that all the time? Loss of self-control. Failing to think before you speak. Sometimes some of us think and then we still speak anyway. It gets us in even more trouble. Yet Proverbs tells us that whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. The one who rules his spirit is better than the one who takes a city. I'm a big fan of watching old World War II movies. I want you to think about all the work that entailed the siege and capture of Berlin, the heart of the Third Reich, took years even to make it to the outskirts of the city. And think of the, the, the massive allied force, the coalition that was required uh, to finally make it to the German heartland, just to make it to the city and then to invade and capture the city. Think how difficult it was. And yet Solomon says under inspiration of the city, It's much harder to tame the tongue. It is much harder to practice self-restraint. Because the one who is slow to anger, he is better than the mighty. He is better than the one who is able to capture a legitimate city. This is how difficult the practice of self-control really is. And anyone who recognizes their own heart knows how difficult this task is really is that is set before us. We could not do this on our own power or strength. Paul, in writing to Timothy, actually warns of the difficult days that the church faces in ever-increasing fashion as we barrel closer and closer to the final day. Where Paul warns that even within the church, all people will want to hear are those things that tickle their ears. Because men will become so in love with themselves that they cannot and they will not rule their own passions. Though they claim to love God, they will be heartless, unappeasable, treacherous, and reckless. But we find it's not just simply a matter of speech or a matter of anger. We also find the issue of self-control as it relates to lust. Scripture speaks of this quite an awful lot. Peter speaks of those whose eyes are filled with adultery. Jesus speaks of adultery as beginning with the eye and the hand moving its way down uh, from the heart. 
For fallen man, and even we might say uh, the believer, struggles against sexual sin and desires, where the desire itself at times feels like it is uncontrollable. You know, we think about what it means to fight and combat temptation, and you think, okay, what do I have to do if I'm put in that particular situation where I can say no? I think Paul rightly recognizes the human heart is so self-deceptive that the, the best thing to do is not to stand and confront it, but to run as far away as possible. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee fornication. He does not say, see how close to the edge you can get. To, to demonstrate how strong of a Christian you are. Whether he's kind of like Gandalf in the mines of Moria going, what, fly you fools. Learn to practice the art of self-control. Do whatever it takes to reign in your sinful desires. Do not put yourself in those situations where your passions will spiral out of control. So Paul even tells the Corinthian church, if you are not able to govern your own passions, it's better to get married. But I add this only in the Lord. Paul even addresses the married. Say, do not deprive one another of your conjugal rights because in that deprivation, you will cause Satan to gain a foothold on account of your own lack of self-control. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. It's not just anger, it's not just their speech, it's not just loss, but it's also the matter of the heart in terms of greed and covetousness. Jesus stares and he looks at the Pharisees. He says, you guys look like you have it all together on the outside, but on the inside your hearts are full of greed and self-indulgence. You so reorder and reinterpret the law of Moses so that you can get whatever your heart desires, and you smear it under this veneer of religiosity claiming that you're simply fulfilling the law of God. And yet Paul says that this is covetousness. Paul says there's another another biblical word for coveting, Colossians 3, verse 5, and that's idolatry. Something that every human heart reckons with. Self-control has to do with greed, and so it has to do with our purchasing impulses. You know, I think one litmus test we can do to examine how well we're doing in terms of self-control is to look at our bank account and see the things that we've spent our money on over the past month. Are we spending the bulk of our funds on entertainment, self-indulgent things? They might be good things, but at least it gives us a litmus test of the very things that our hearts love. And what if you, you have your, your Amazon list, you have that, that one-click button where you just can't help yourself? There's things we have to recognize, and it's not simply ordering forbidden things. Do you think that regarding non-necessary items, you look at that and you go, I have to have it now? Like Paul before Felix, we're being reminded of the importance of self-control. Paul relates self-control not just to what we purchase, but even to what we wear. Paul says this, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and with self-control. That's not to judge others for what they wear necessarily, 
or at all. It's, this is a self-reflective litmus test. Why am I purchasing you know, my 17th sport coat? Do I really need 30 fishing poles? The answer I want to say is yes. And I'm not trying to, 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 to determine a particular number. I'm not here to, to relegate new laws for anybody here regarding what you purchase. Simply to start using this as a tool to ask ourselves, am I, have I spiraled out of self-control in one of these regions, in one of these areas, be it anger, be it lust, be it greed, be it how I dress, be it how I speak? See, self-control is not a compartment that only addresses one part of the human heart. It addresses the whole human heart. That's why Scripture speaks of mastering not simply our spending habits, but mastering our appetites. It's one of the biblical words to speak of the human affections. Remember, uh, and not just in bad ways, but also in good ways, you think of the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, blessed are those who what? Who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It speaks of that craving that exists down deep in our bellies. It would be a hunger for things good or for things bad. Peter speaks of it as an appetite. What is it that you hunger for? And how do we bring that in subjugation to the rule of Christ? I remember this week I had lunch with a friend of mine. Y'all, y'all have met him before, Drew Burdett. He's the RF campus minister here at Oregon State. We went to that uh, a little Vietnamese restaurant there on, I think it was 3rd Street, Baguettes. Great restaurant. I'd never been there before. I walked in. I said, oh, this is going to be a delightful lunch. And I thought, well, you know, my dad hasn't gotten anything, so I'll get a, a to-go sandwich for him uh, and, and take it home to him. So I got, I got two sandwiches. I'm eating the first sandwich with Drew, and I finished the first sandwich, and it was very good. I was very full. But then I looked at that other sandwich sitting in front of me, all by its lonesome, and I just shook my head. I said, sorry, Pops. So I got home, you know, later that afternoon. I said, Dad, I've got good news and bad news. Good news is I found this great Vietnamese restaurant, and I got you a sandwich. The bad news... So I'm preaching on self-control this week, and I failed miserably. Do I regret it? Not much. And yet Proverbs 25 tells us that if you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and you vomit. I should have read Proverbs 25 before I went uh, to baguettes this past Tuesday. Because Solomon says it is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. You see, Solomon even compares the pursuit of self-acclaim and the pursuit of attention as a lack of self-control. It's compared to gluttony. And so then you have to ask yourself, well, what am I doing on social media? What am I posting about myself and all my accomplishments and achievements? How do I spend the days talking about me? We have to learn to practice the art of self-control. In other words, this unbounded self-promotion exercises about as much self-control as a glutton and a a drunkard. Older word for this is intemperance. 
You think of the temperance movement, and we typically want to only apply it to drinking alcohol, but it applies to so much more. Every facet of our lives is one of discipline. Discipleship. Jesus says if you're unwilling to take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. This is a central tenet to Christian discipleship. And so to practice self-control, we must learn to know ourselves and ask ourselves, in what ways am I weak? We might be weak in different ways. In fact, I would contend that each of us are all weak in different ways. Some people might struggle with anger more than lust. Some people with lust more than greed. And yet we struggle and all have to practice self-control in every facet of our lives as an ongoing pursuit. As we heard read earlier in 2 Peter chapter 1, an ever-increasing capacity. Just as you've begun to do this, so continue to increase about it more and more. And so we learn to practice This particular spirit-wrought virtue of self-control, we can't simply say, well, know yourself, as if simply learning more about yourself is the end game. You have to recognize where your own weaknesses are, but you cannot stop there, because it is only there that you begin to see where the real battle takes place. In what areas do those sinful desires need mortification What sinful passions in our own hearts need to be put to death and be brought under control? See, this is not simply a matter of behavior modification. I told the story a few weeks ago during our midweek Wednesday Bible study. Um, When I was in graduate school, I worked the graveyard graveyard shift in security. Uh, and, you know, I, was, I would take uh, classes in the evening on one side of Jacksonville, and I'd have to drive to the other side of Jacksonville. Of course, it's the summertime, and so I couldn't pack a lunch uh, and stick it in my truck because the, the, the lunchbox would sp- spontaneously combust and burst into flames because it's just so hot in Florida. You know, everything would just melt. So the only thing I could do for getting my lunch so I could have something to eat at 4.30 in the morning on my lunch break was stopping at the only restaurant by my work, and that was a Wendy's. And so I did that every night for about two years, where I would stop and I would get a Wendy's double cheeseburger with some fries and maybe some chicken nuggets and, you know, maybe a Frosty, a couple other things. Needless to say, after several months, I began to pack on the pounds. I go to see a doctor. I'm not feeling well, naturally. Doctor says, what? You're a fatty. You need to stop. You need to start eating salads. So I would start going to Wendy's and I would get a salad also. Get a cheeseburger. Because any of y'all know what it's like to eat a salad. Salads are great for the things that you eat. Um, but if you eat a salad yourself, you're just going to end up being hungry again in about an hour. And of course, once you're at work, you can't break away. Find a place at 5 o'clock in the morning to eat. So I would get a salad. And then, of course, an hour later, I would have my cheeseburger. Needless to say, didn't lose weight. Because what happens every time you're eating the salad? You're thinking about how much you hate salad and how much you'd really, really want a cheeseburger. One of the things I think is really striking is when you read 1 Peter chapter 2, Paul starts about putting away all these sinful passions, put, put, a, put away malice and anger, envy, uh, uh, and all these uh, evil desires. But then he says this. He doesn't say to drink 
the spiritual milk of the word. Rather, he says, long for it. In other words, one of the things that Paul is, or Peter is getting at in, a, in quite a practical sense is that if you want to see real transformation, real uh, um, victory, real growth and self-control, it, it can't simply be behavior modification where you're, simply, you're doing the right thing, you're eating the salad, but in, in your heart, you're hating it. You have to reorder your affections. You have to learn to love those things that are good. This is why Paul says to the church of Philippi, whatever things are true or good or lovely or of noble report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, these are the things that you are to think upon. The work of sanctification begins in the heart. Yes, we are to subject our bodies to the will of Christ. This is the will of God, your sanctification that you obtain from sexual, abstain from sexual immorality. But it's not just our outward actions, it's also even our inner affections and desires. To learn to control oneself, you must learn to reorient your desires, or you must learn to alter your appetites. It's something that cannot be done apart from the Spirit's work. You read any Puritan theologian in the 17th century that talks about godliness, they'll make this point, but then they will say this. If you're trying to do this apart from faith in Christ, you're doomed from the start. You might look good on the outside, but you're still going to be a total failure on the inside because the heart has not subjected itself to Christ. I remember walking, uh, running into a guy I went to school with. We went to junior high together. We weren't necessarily friends, but we had a number of classes together. And, uh, you know, this is the 90s, so he wore like the Doc Martin boots, all black, you know, the, the chains and everything. Um, and then I run into him, you know, two or three years uh, after we graduated high school, walking down the street in khakis, uh, short hair. He's wearing a, uh, uh, one of those uh, uh, sweater vests without the sleeves and like a, and a, and a dress shirt. Looks like a completely different person. Former drug addict, now just looks squeaky clean. It was kind of weird wearing a sweater vest in Florida, but hey, whatever. Uh, anyways, I run into this guy. I say, Brandon, it's good, good to see you. You've changed a lot. He goes, oh yeah. He says, I've become a better person. And he talks about how he used to be on drugs, but now he's not. And so he's gotten better and he's practicing meditation and all these other things. And you think you look so good on the outside, but you're still the same person that you are on the inside. Because the heart has not been renewed by the Spirit. You've practiced, you've practiced so many things in high school, and, and there, there were bad things. Doing drugs is bad. You've gotten your life turned around, but you still haven't gotten to the root problem. You have put a Band-Aid on cancer. My old uh, pastor in college, Paul Boyd, would put it like this. It's not good enough simply to starve your lusts, so that's what you need to do. You also must feed your loves. It's not good enough to say, I need to stop looking at porn late at night. That's a good start. But you also have to reorient your desires to love good things. Not only to see that what you are doing at night when nobody is looking is bad, but also to learn what is honorable, true, and virtuous, and to pursue these things as a great good, even when nobody 
is looking. In short, we could put it like this. You have to learn to stop living off of spiritual junk food. But you also have to feed yourself with the good things that God has given. And God has given us three distinct ways to help us grow in godliness. Ways to help us grow that we might learn to mortify our sins and so live to God. Those three means of God's gracious work are the Word, sacraments, and prayer. To sit under the preaching of the Word. To spend time meditating on the Word. To memorize the word, uh, Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. To let God's word become uh, the, the, the ruler, the yardstick by which we uh, measure not just our actions, but even our affections. To ask ourselves, am I allowed to love this? Yes or no? If yes, am I loving this good thing too much? Or perhaps am I not loving it enough? These are all things we have to evaluate every day. Things we have to reflect upon. We feel so weak, so we pray to God. Romans chapter 8, we don't even know how to pray. That's why the Spirit helps us in our weakness, because so often we don't even know what it is we're supposed to be praying. Ollie Halsby in his book on prayer begins... Uh, One of the best books on prayer begins by asking that question, why is it that prayer is so hard? Because the first thing prayer does is it it admits that we need help. This is something we want to do. All we want to do is just pursue what we want to do. And that's it. We want our own way. End of story. And yet, the two great commandments entail a crucifixion of that one desire. That we are to pursue not our own desires, but the will of God. That we are to pursue not our own good, but the good of our neighbor. That is the law of love. That is why Peter, I'm sorry, that's why Paul here says there is no law against these things. That's why Paul says there can be no Christian discipleship without discipline. So he writes to Corinth saying, Do you not know that in a race all, runner, all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. For those of you who played football or baseball or basketball, you know what it was like in high school to practice those things. Chances are you didn't go out and eat three greasy cheeseburgers right before you had to run you know, a mile. If you did, it probably ended up with very disastrous results. Well, the same is true spiritually. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a wreath that, that fades, that withers away. But we do it, Paul writes, to receive an imperishable wreath. And so he says, I discipline not just my soul, but also my body to bring it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I'm in the same boat you are. That's what Paul's saying. Paul says, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, and yet I am obligated to do this very thing as well. I don't want to disqualify myself from the race. Excuse me. 
Self-control is just one tool in the disciple's toolkit. It's not the whole of the Christian life, but it is an essential component of it. This is why Peter writes, to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and let that self-control give way to steadfastness, that you do it in godliness and brotherly affection and love. For if these qualities are yours and ever-increasing, they will keep you from becoming ineffective as a believer. They'll keep you from becoming unfruitful. And that is the very thing that Paul has been addressing here in Galatians. That the fruit of the Spirit consists in these very things. And so this is something we are to practice, but it is not a practicing on our own strength or in our own merits. It is a practicing of self-control that we might be conformed to look like Christ. In other words, what the scripture says is, you want to know more about your Savior? Practice self-control. Learn really what it means to say no to temptation. Jesus did it every day of his earthly ministry, every day of his life, from the cradle to Calvary. You know, we, th- we think temptation is rough, but we don't really know how bad temptation is because we, we succumb to it too easy, too often. Can you imagine going your whole life without caving in to that one desire that you seem to trip up on day in and day out? That is what Jesus did. It speaks to the great strength that Christ our Savior has as the God-man. And Hebrews 5 reminds us that Christ did this, that he might become our sympathetic high priest, that he knows what it is like to be tempted and to suffer. In fact, he knows it better than any of us in this room do, because he never said yes to Satan. He never said yes to sinful temptations, but he did it so that he could understand, so that he could be sympathetic, so that when we come before the throne of grace, we could have a Savior who is gentle and lowly, who stands high above in the heavens, making intercession for sinners, knowing what it means to struggle, that we might be given the strength to fight against temptation, and that we might be given the grace of pardon for when we do fall and succumb to it. And as we learn to practice self-control, we learn to sympathize with those around us who struggle with the same features of indwelling sin that we all struggle with. This cannot be done apart from prayer and the Word. It cannot be done apart from the Spirit's work. And yet we are told and reminded this is the reason Christ has come. That Christ died for our sins and He was raised for our justification that we might die to sin and live no longer for ourselves, but that we might live for Him who died and was raised for us. When we think about the human heart and how it's constantly at war with itself, a three-sided civil war, as it were, the mind, the will, the affections, extending outward from the inner man to the outer man. We find how disoriented and disheveled we are. And yet, I think it gives us a greater appreciation of the psalmist in Psalm 86 when he has, and when he prays this prayer, Lord, unite my heart 
to fear your name. So my thoughts are running one way. So my affections are running another. So my will is going in a different direction. Lord, I pray that you would take all three of these and so bring them into perfect harmony in obedience to the things that you command. That I might look like my Savior. But I, I confess, Lord, that I cannot do this unless you strengthen me to do it. And be reminded that we have a Savior who is for us, not against us. That Christ, as our prophet, speaks to us the things that we need to hear of instruction and pardon. That He is our high priest who sanctifies us by His Spirit and cleanses us when we fail. And He is our King who subdues our hearts so that we might by His Spirit's power learn to practice the Christian discipline of self-control. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we ask that you would take this word and seal it on our hearts. We pray that you would not simply give us knowledge, but that this knowledge that you've given us would be exercised towards godliness in obedience to Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.